Well, again, let me say good morning. I'm glad that you're here today. We're continuing in this series that we're doing that are leading up to the Sundays leading to Christmas called A Name for Every Need. A Name for Every Need. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 6. And if you want to turn there, you'll see the verse upon which this series is based. This famous passage in Isaiah. Each week, we're looking at a different of these names. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a name for every need. Last Sunday, we looked at Wonderful Counselor, how Jesus is a wonderful counselor, right? He deals with us personally. He diagnoses us properly, right? Do you need the ministry of truth or do you need the ministry of tears? I think last week some people uh, thought maybe, am I, am I more a fixer or a feeler? And the fixers in your life were like, I'll tell you exactly what you are right now. Listen up. Began fixing you, you know. But he diagnoses us properly and, of course, he delivers us powerfully. And today we come to that second name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He shall be called Mighty God. Y'all. Before we go a step further, we would do well to remind ourselves to think about, especially, especially if you grew up in church, especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt, you need to ponder, you need to stop and consider what an absolutely incendiary statement that is. This child that was born, human, child, got it, little baby, is the mighty God. See, um, when you say Jesus is Lord, capital L-O-R-D, you're saying Jesus is God, co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, very God of very God, who counted it not robbery to be equal with God. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians say all things were made by him and through him and in him all things hold together. Jesus is God. Look, we, we have a category, okay? We have a category for someone being all human, uh, and that means Jesus was a Nazarene carpenter from 2,000 years ago. We got a category for that. And we at least have a conceptual category for someone who is all God, right? We can imagine God. But we do not have a category for someone who is all man and all God. And yet that is exactly what Isaiah 9, 6 demands you believe. That Jesus is Lord. Do you realize what's at stake? I don't want to belabor the point, but I don't want to move too quickly either. Do do you realize what's at stake? This is not, to believe in the deity of Jesus, this is not like just like an optional belief, you know, um, a part of our doctrine that you can sort of take or leave, like a theological footnote. This is everything. What's at stake, you might say, is blasphemy or idolatry. Uh, Blasphemy. Uh, Blasphemy is when you declare that someone or something that is God, that's not God, that's blasphemy. Idolatry is the flip side of the coin. It's blasphemy in reverse. Idolatry is when you declare something that is not God as God. 
Does that make sense? That's idolatry. You bow down and worship this block of stone or this statue. That's not God, but you're worshiping it as God. So blasphemy is declaring not God, something that is God, and idolatry is declaring something as God that is not God. We're guilty of one of those two things, wherever you land, if in fact Jesus is not God. For clarity, imagine, let's imagine that we are in conversation right now with a Muslim friend. And uh, we could just as easily maybe illustrate with Mormon or Jehovah Witness, but for right now, let, let's start with Muslim. This person who we are in conversation with would say to us very clearly, in no uncertain terms, it is sort of the banner of their faith, they would say this, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad his prophet. Got it? What they are saying very clearly with no uncertain terms is saying that there is one God. And they would deny any human being would be equal to God. In fact, Muhammad, their highest uh, esteemed prophet, is just his prophet. In fact, it may be interesting for you to know, uh, Muslims have no, they don't have a problem with Jesus, Isa in Arabic, they call him Isa. Uh, Got no problem with Isa as long as you say Isa was a great prophet. They admire Isa, they respect Jesus, but there's no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet, right? So, so they would say, I think we can be kind to each other, we can partner together, we can you know, work together for the common good, whether it's to feed the poor or care for the oppressed. But make no mistake, they would say, unless we repent and turn to Allah and ask for his forgiveness, we will spend eternity apart from God because we have continued in idolatry. We have said, this man Jesus is God. And if we're wrong, we're guilty of idolatry of the highest order. And they would plead to us, before it's too late, repent. Because you're, you're, you're guilty of idolatry. Allah will be merciful, Allah will forgive, but repent from that before it's too late and receive his forgiveness. Now here's the thing. We would say the exact same thing, right? We can be kind, we can partner together for the common good, but make no mistake, we would say, God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully God. So to declare that which is not God, to say that Jesus is not God, is blasphemy of the highest order. And we would say, unless you repent and receive God's forgiveness, he will forgive you. But you will spend eternity separated from him as long as you reject your blaspheming God. The reason I think it's helpful to draw this uh, illustration out, illustrating the point between, imagine a conversation between a Christian and a Muslim, is because the lines are so clearly drawn. Uh, Perfectly clear. And... That's helpful then when you think about, you know, somebody would say, what about Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses who say Jesus is not exactly God? And while it would go beyond the time allotted here to do an in-depth study of their doctrine, suffice to say they reject the idea of the Trinity. And on the surface, it may seem like, yeah, but we have so much else in common. We just differ on this, you know, on this doctrine of the Trinity. I would say, no, this is a fundamental issue that divides. If Jesus is a mere man, then to anyone who would say, you know, we're all pretty much on the same team, I would say, stop with the patronizing nonsense. If Jesus is a mere man, then we are, Christians are idolaters who will split hell wide open. It would be, and it would be more helpful if all parties just like came clean on that and acknowledged that. We're not just folks who differ theologically. One or the other of us is guilty of the highest blasphemy. 
I want to establish what's at stake when you say this little baby is mighty God. Listen, it is a line in the sand. So I don't ever want you to forget, especially the danger, of course, is if you grow up in the Bible Belt where there's, there's this sort of weird, almost cultural Christianity where for years you can kind of, if you're not careful, you can kind of walk through thinking, yeah, you know, Jesus is a good guy. I got no problem with Jesus. No, 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 no. It, it, Don't forget how scandalous this is. When you stand at your baptism, right, when, when I baptize somebody up there or somebody's baptized, and, and, and what do they say? They say these three little words. And you've, you've been in the the congregation perhaps when you saw a baptism and you 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 said that same profession with them what did you say jesus is lord i want you to ponder what an inflammatory incendiary sentence that is around the world don't ever think well because a lot of people might say it here in our area that is a sentence that to this day divides Jesus was crucified because of those three words. Jesus is Lord. Why did the Sanhedrin, what was their charge against Jesus? What did they accuse him of? They accused him of what? Blasphemy. That's right. Because he claimed to be equal to God. The first followers of Jesus were brutally killed, including Stephen, because he testified to that simple sentence, Jesus is God. They wouldn't have killed Stephen if he had just said Jesus was a prophet. In the first 300 years after the resurrection, countless Christians were brutally murdered because they would say, no, I can't say Caesar is Lord. I have to say Jesus is Lord. And today, the persecuted church around the world, look, they would be just fine if they would just admit that Jesus was a good person, a miracle worker, but that's all. But they won't do it. They claim he's co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. So they lose their families and jobs and homes and sometimes even their life. Let me put it one last way. If Jesus was not God, then his death on the cross was deserved. He was crucified, you'll remember, for blasphemy, his claim to be God. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon puts it. If Christ were not the Son of God, his death was a death most richly deserved. His condemnation for blasphemy was the justest sentence that was ever pronounced. His crucifixion on Calvary, absolutely the most righteous execution that was ever performed. So this is a line in the sand. This is an incendiary statement Isaiah is demanding. We cast our verdict on this. Is he or is he not? Is he mighty God? Now, to those who might say, let me just do a quick sidestep uh, uh, to answer an objection, uh, a little, little brief aside to apologetics. Uh, did Jesus ever claim to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 9? In other words, did Jesus ever claim to be God? The answer is yes. Uh, though he never said the exact words, I am God, he made that claim in many ways. Uh, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of rifle off a few. John, in John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews who heard him make that statement, his opponents in the next verse, uh, picked up stones to stone him. So you may be unclear on what he meant when he said, I and the Father are one, but they weren't. <laughs> They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be equal with God. They were, they were stoning him because that's the penalty for blasphemy. Uh, in John 14, he says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? Father's in me. In John 8, he tells the, his opponents, before Abraham was, I am. And again, they picked up stones to stone him. He was uh, uh, tried at his uh, uh, mockery of a trial. He was tried on the grounds of blasphemy, claiming to be equal with God. And of course, the New Testament writers have no problem talking about Jesus as God. In John 1, John uses a little bit of code language, cryptic language. He says, in the be he calls Jesus the Word. And he says, in, be in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Uh, Paul uh, calls uh, uh, Jesus in, in Titus 2, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, one a great example of a disciple, uh, remember when Jesus appears in the upper room the second time? The first time I think Thomas wasn't there, and, and so he doubted. And the second time he shows up and reveals to Thomas he is the risen Lord. Thomas turns to remember what he says? My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Uh, God the Father even refers to Jesus as God. In Hebrews 1.8, which is quoting Psalm 45, Listen to this verse. About the Son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So God the Father refers to Jesus as God. So in in many ways, including, of course, his miracles, Jesus did claim to be God. Just like last week. Last week, I didn't just want to tell you he was a wonderful counselor. I wanted to show you from a place in the Bible. I wanted us to, to go to a text that we could, we could briefly exegete and we could look at this text and you could see, show you that he is a wonderful counselor. And I took you to the, the scene of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Well, what am I gonna do today to show you Jesus is mighty God? Where would you go in scripture to show that Jesus is mighty God? Imagine you're preparing the message this week. What, what, what do you do? What, 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 the theme is mighty God. How are you going to show Jesus is mighty God? Where would you go? Where would you not go, right? I mean, you could do Exodus. You could, you could, go, you could do Old Testament. You could talk about how the prophets predicted him. You could do the miracles in the Gospels. You could do Revelation, returning. You could do the resurrection. You could do the whole Bible, so that's what I've decided to do today. We're going to look at the whole Bible. We're just going to do it all. We're going to be here all day. Cancel your Christmas plans. I picked, um, of all the miracles, I picked, uh, I picked Mark 6. Turn to Mark 6, verse 45. Now I want to show you, and note takers rejoice. I'll give you th- three things in parallel structure you can write down. But I want to show you, Jesus is the mighty God. And of all the miracles I could have picked, I picked a famous one. And I'll tell you why. Mark 6. I'd say this is probably top 10 miracles people know about Jesus, even people that don't know the Bible. I think a lot of people think of uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They think of feeding of the 5,000. And then eventually, I would definitely say top 10, um, uh, Jesus walking on the water. Jesus walking on the water. So that's the miracle. Here we go. He is mighty God. Mark 6, starting in verse 45. Uh, Remember, he had just fed the 5,000. They wanted to make him king by force. His time had not yet come, and he wasn't going to be an earthly king. And so he dismisses the crowds, sends the disciples away. That's where we pick up the action in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, got it? It was difficult for them to row. Why? For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, so sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., dark of night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That's such a great, such a confusing confounding phrase what on earth he meant to pass by them like he was trying to be sneaky you know but he sees he meant to pass by them then just pass by them you're the you're already walking on the water i think you're you got ninja skills clearly but no 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought, whatever it means, they didn't know what it meant, they thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And Matthew, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew tells the exact same story. He adds the the stuff about Peter walking on the water, you'll recall that. But he adds, this is how Matthew ends his account. Same story. He adds this one little detail. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, why did I pick this miracle? For Jesus is mighty God. I'll tell you why. This miracle has always struck me as being just a little bit different. At the risk of sounding irreverent, a risk I obviously care nothing about. That ship sailed long ago. I think when ninjas come into your sermon, that, that, that issue has been settled. At the risk of sounding irreverent, what's the point of this miracle? See, because all these other miracles, especially at Christmas time when the world comes together for peace and harmony and helping others, every other miracle totally makes sense. Jesus feeds the 5,000. These poor crowds had nothing to eat and they were hungry and he, Jesus gives out the Jack's Fish biscuits for everybody in the whole place, you know, and you go, oh, that's such compassion. He cares about their physical needs. When Jesus healed people, I mean, a guy is blind from birth and suddenly he can see. What love, what compassion. First he was blind, now he can see. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, there's, there's a death of a loved one, and now he's back. Death has been defeated, and Lazarus is back when he, when he, when he heals Jairus' daughter. She's dead, and, 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 and he says, little girl, time to get up, and that 12-year-old, they get their 12-year-old girl back. When that woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, reaches out, and he heals that woman. Now she's restored and ceremonially clean, and the lepers can be restored to their families. It all makes sense. People benefit. Who benefits from this naked show of power? What's the point? You know what I mean? Like who who gets fed or healed or back to life or restored? Who benefits? Other than like maybe a fish that now has a story that like no one is ever going to believe. I'm telling you, there was a dude walking on water. No Nemo, it didn't happen. You with me? Who, everybody, everybody with me? Who, who or what benefits from this miracle? That's why I picked it. To me, the miracle only has one point. This is not a parlor trick. This is not uh, some sort of illusion. This is fulfillment of ancient prophecy to show, this is, this is theophany. Theophany is the word we use in the, particularly in the Old Testament, but also the New, when God shows up, when God reveals himself to people. This is theophany. Why do I say that? Think about where we are in the Gospel of Mark and where we are in the meta-narrative of Scripture at this point. In the Gospel of Mark, it has 16 chapters. The whole Gospel of Mark is all about the slowly, slowly, slowly dawning on people who Jesus is. In fact, if you go back and read it, it's 16 chapters. It's not till chapter 8 that a, that, that, that a disciple says who Jesus is. You're the, son of the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. For the first eight chapters of Mark, it's funny, the only people who actually know who Jesus is are the demons. The humans are like, who could he be? The demons are like, uh-oh, right? We know who you are. 
the disciples, you know. But can you imagine? No wonder Jesus is always going off to pray. Poor guy. He's like, no, my own followers don't get, the demons know me better than they do. See? Now, where are we in the meta narrative of Scripture? God is revealing that this child is born, this son is given, this prophesied one has come in Jesus Christ. Let me take you to one of the most ancient scriptures I can think of. Some people say the book of Job was written before Genesis. This is ancient stuff here. Job, ninth chapter, I'll put it up here. In the ninth chapter of Job, he's talking about things that only God can do. He's in this chapter where he's talking about the majesty of God, the power of God. And so this ancient scripture, at least he's contemporary with the patriarchs, he's saying God is not like anything or anyone else. And he makes this list of things only God can do. Only God can move the mountains. Only God can make the sun stop shining. Only God can send an earthquake. And in the midst of all this, he comes to verse 8 and he says, only God, he alone, you see that? Only the mighty God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Now, if you take the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. They translated it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. If you take those words in the Old Testament in the Greek, treads on the waves of the sea, they are verbatim the same words used of Jesus in Mark 6, which say Jesus came to them treading on the waves of the sea. What's my point? Jesus is mighty God. You can write this down. Why? First, because he walks where only God can walk. You got that? Jesus is the mighty God, first of all, because Jesus walks where only God can walk. I believe Mark 6 is nothing short of the declaration that there is the triune God is incarnate right here on earth, dwelling in the person of Jesus Messiah. No mere man can walk on water, only God can do this, and Mark 6 is revealing that to the disciples and to us, that Jesus is mighty God, because he walks where only God can walk. And I might pause here ever so briefly to say some of you can apply this to your life right now. And here's why. Some of you are here and you have places in your life, some of you have hidden places of shame that you allow no one to go. No one gets to walk there. And you desperately need, you're here but you feel like you're wearing a mask and you desperately long to be found out. But it would kill you to be found out, you think, but you want to be, and you need more than anything, you need someone who can walk into those places of chaos and darkness and brokenness, and I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus can walk where only the mighty God can walk. He can reach you. He loves you. Will you open your heart to him? He can go to those places. He can touch and he can transform. Is he calling you right now? Will you let him in? He's the mighty God. And he walks where only God can walk. But there's more. He, he walks where only God can walk. Now, let's go back to that cryptic verse, verse 48. He meant to pass by them. He wanted to pass by them. I think that feels out of place because it, 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 it taps into a whole narrative in the Old Testament. We, we see this phrase, passing by, uh, used of theophany. Um, um, remember when Moses was like, God, I want to see your glory. And God was like, you can't handle all my glory. So here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will, you know the phrase they use, I will pass by. 
You won't get to behold, but I'll pass by. And then in 1 Kings, Elijah wants to see the glory of God. And there's this big earthquake, and there's this, all this stuff, but, but God wasn't in the big, loud, crashing uh, stuff and said in a still, small voice. And it says that he passes by. But Elijah can't behold the glory of God. It's just a, just a man. And then in this same passage in Job, that same passage in Job, he says, only God can stretch the sky and walk on the treads on the waves of the sea. Look at Job 9, verse 10 and 11. Same, this is the exact same passage. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Listen, I may be making too much of this, but I you have a passage where Job is straining the very bounds of language to describe how big and powerful and mighty the mighty God is. And he says stuff like, he treads on the sea. And when he passes by, I can't perceive him. And when he passes by, I, I can't behold him. I can't take him in. And then you fast forward in Mark 6, you have Jesus treading on the waves of the sea and the disciples can't perceive him. I might be making too much of it or it might literally be that this ancient prophecy was made in Job. There is coming a mighty God and when Jesus walked on water in Mark 6, he fulfilled it. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled. He is mighty God. Why? Well, because he walks where only God can walk. And here's your second one. He passes by like a way in the scriptures we only see God pass by he's mighty god walks where only god can walk passes by like only god can pass by one more jesus speaks one time in mark they cry out in fear right they're scared to death and jesus says of all things verse 50 but immediately he spoke to them and said take heart it is i do not be afraid he says take courage don't be afraid and right in between those two lines are those, there are three words in English, there are only two words in Greek. It is I. In Greek, ego, amy. You could translate that, it is I, or I am I, or if you wanted, you could translate ego, amy, as I am. Now those of you who know your Bibles will recall that when Moses asked God, what is your name at the burning bush in Exodus 3, God gave him the name and it was so sacred that Jews wouldn't even speak it aloud for fear of blasphemy. Yahweh, I am. Would anyone like to guess how you translate Yahweh into Greek? Ego, Amy. I may be making too much of this, but I don't think so. In John chapter eight, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, he said, ego, amy, and they picked up rocks to throw at him. All I'm saying is, Jesus walks where only God can walk. Jesus passes by like only God can pass by. And Jesus uses the name that only God can use, the sacred name of God, I am. Jesus uses it of himself. So there's your three points. Now what does this have to do with us? What's the application of all this? The inherent promise in this sermon series is that he's a name for every need. So what does this have to do with us today, this morning? Well, the simplest application is to simply see how did the disciples apply it to their lives in the moment. And I bet that's going to be the same exact application for us. How did the disciples apply this, this Jesus displaying his mighty God power. How did they apply it to their life? Look at Matthew 14, 33. Look back. And those in the boat 
worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped him. They see that he walks where only God can walk, that he passes by like only God can pass by. He uses the name only God can use. And they did not say, huh, what a good moral prophet, right? What a good moral teacher. What an example. I should probably... They fall at his feet and say, truly, they are the Son of God. They, you see that word? Worshipped him. Let me be very clear. If Jesus were not God, if he were just a prophet, can you imagine allowing somebody to worship you? If you're just a prophet, if you were just a prophet, he would have been like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing, right? Uh, uh, imagine, uh, imagine he's like Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah would be a good example. Can you imagine if somebody did that to Isaiah? Uh, Isaiah had just a, just a little bit of a problem with idolatry. And can you imagine if some Israelites came up to him, worshipped him, and said, oh, prophet Isaiah, we worship you. Truly, you are the son of God. What do you think Isaiah would have done? Those Israelites would be lucky to get out of there alive. <laughs> he would have ripped his garments. He would have said, are you out of your mind? What are you doing? I'm just a mere prophet. He would have never stood there and been like, he would have never accepted their worship. He would have said, this is blasphemy. Let's all beg for forgiveness. Everybody, you're a people of unclean lips, and I'm associated with you, so I'm a man of unclean lips. Let's all beg God for forgiveness because of the blasphemy that just happened. Isaiah would have never accepted this kind of worship, and yet Jesus does. My point is, if he's not God, don't dare say he's a good prophet. He's a wicked prophet if he's not God. He's a self-aggrandized megalomaniac if he's not God. Do you understand what's at stake? He's mighty God because he walks where only God can walk. He passes by like only God can pass by. He uses the name only God can use. Therefore, here's the application, church. This is how to apply it today. Therefore, Jesus demands the worship that only God can demand. Let me conclude this way. And I think I'm being very practical here. If everything I've just said is true, it means there can be no halfway measures when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. It means you've got to stop with the halfway. He demands absolute obedience as the God of the universe. Half measures avail nothing. If Jesus is the glory of God embodied, the word of God, if he's the ultimate expression of who God is, if he's triune God, then when he says things like, I'm gonna judge the world, only God can do that. I can forgive your sins, only God can do that. He's claiming to be God. That means you can't have it both ways anymore. That, that forces your hand, does it not? That's, that's what Christmas does. Christmas forces you to a decision. If you have a mere man, a human being, claiming to be the judge of the world, then you either have to say he is a fool, he is wicked, and run away from him, or you have to fall at his feet and say, command me, I give you everything. You cannot have halfway measures. You cannot say the utterly foolish thing. And that, that's the danger of being in a Bible Belt kind of part of the country is you got all this cultural Christianity where you feel like you can say, well, you know, I'm for Jesus. I'm not against Jesus. Jesus is cool. No, he's either wicked and must be denounced or he's Lord of everything. You cannot have it both ways. How can I say this? Uh, uh, a good friend of mine, C.S. Lewis, said it this way. He's either a liar or he is a lunatic 
or he is the Lord. There's no other option. Either make him Lord of all this morning. Take everything you have and put it under the lordship of Christ as best you know how. Make him Lord of all or make him not Lord at all. There is no third option. For anyone who is on the fence, who wants to have it both ways, if the spirit is moving this morning, convicting you, what is it? You cannot treat him as a merely good teacher. You can't have that anymore. That ground has evaporated from under your feet. You see the logic of your position. You cannot. Either that little baby born in a manger is mighty God and must be worshipped as God. And you, if, if he's not, we're guilty of the highest blasphemy. So denounce Jesus as wicked or enthrone him as God. There's no third option. Does everyone understand the application? Half measures avail nothing. You must give him your whole heart. He is mighty God, therefore he deserves 100% complete obedience and worship and love. He demands complete loyalty and nothing less. Does everyone understand that? Okay, uh, I don't know how many of you have taken an airplane flight lately, but if you're seated in the exit row, it's, it's pretty cool. They... Uh, and they used to always do this. They give you a little special briefing. So the flight attendant goes by and briefs everybody on safety. But then if you're on the exit row, you get a little special treatment. Because you see, you're on the exit row, and I need to know. And so, so the flight attendant, he or she will say something like this. Uh, I need to know that you are willing and able to assist me in the unlikely event of an emergency. And they've always said that. To which you're like, mm, right? But for the last 10 years or so, I've noticed something. You know what they say? They've done this. Some of you have, some of you have flown, they do this. They pause, and they say, I'm going to need a verbal yes. And I don't know why, but I'm always like, ooh, this is serious all of a sudden. And so, and, and, she, and he or she will wait till everyone, you take your headphones off, you take your mask. Yes. I mean, what have I agreed to, right? Am I throwing the thing? You know, good luck, you know? Like, like, what am I supposed to, you know? And then sometimes I'm overthinking it. Man, maybe I am a hero. You know, anyway, whatever. Like, who am I? Everybody understand the point? I had to give a verbal yes to the application that this person wanted me. So let's try this again. Denounce Christ as wicked or enthrone him as God. Christmas removes any other option. Does everyone understand the application? Half measures avail nothing. You must give him your whole heart. If he's mighty God, he deserves 100% complete obedience and worship and love, complete loyalty, and nothing less. Does everyone understand that? I'm going to need a verbal yes. 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 Good. Then this is the last thing I'll say. No one does that. No one gives absolute loyalty to Jesus like we should. No one gives him complete obedience as mighty God, not like he deserves. No one enthrones him. And don't you even try to wiggle out. Don't you say, oh, but I have an excuse, because you literally, when I asked you if you knew the standard, you literally just gave me a verbal yes. And you were right to do so, and I would too. So I'm, I'm, I'm right there stuck with you. Because if you ask me that question, does he deserve 100% of my loyalty, you could ask me a thousand times, a thousand times, I'd give you a verbal yes. But my heart is so filled with sin and selfishness. So what am I supposed to do? He's, he's mighty God. Isaiah 9 says unto us, 
A child is born and he's mighty God. He demands complete loyalty and complete obedience. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times I will always tell you, yes, and you were right to say yes. You should say yes. I'm proud of you for saying yes. We all know the standard and we failed. What are we supposed to do? That. That's the miracle of Christmas. Because the prophecy doesn't just say, unto us a child is born. He also says what? Unto us a son is given. What's given? What's given me? Given means John 3.16. For God so loved the world. For every Christian who looks up at God and says, I love you. I know the standard. I know you're mighty God. I, I want to worship you with 100%, but I know that my heart is far away. What do I do? What's the hope? To every Christian who's ever looked, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For every Christian who knows in their heart, they know the standard, but they also feel that weight of guilt of knowing we haven't met that standard. For every one of those Christians, you look right now in your mind's eyes, best you can, you look to Calvary's cross. Because there, on that cross, you see none other than the mighty God who allowed himself to become unmade on that cross. The mighty God died on Good Friday for us and our salvation. Grace. Does that mean that evil was stronger? No. It means mighty God was paying the ultimate price. Why? Because no human could absorb all that wrath from God. No human could make full atonement. No human could absorb every drop of the wrath of God. Only the mighty God could make full atonement. And in Jesus Christ, you have this child born, fully man. Oh, but you have this son given. He is mighty God. And that means he's mighty to save. Does that mean that evil won on the cross? That evil was more powerful than God? No, he's the mighty God. He defeated evil on the cross. And on Easter Sunday morning, he rose with all authority and power in his hand, where he forever reigns as mighty God. And he's mighty to tread on the waves of the sea. He's mighty to claim the name that only God can claim. And he's mighty to save every one of us who put our trust in him. He is mighty God. He's a name for every need. Let's pray. God, grant to Christians here who would say a thousand times, you could ask them a thousand times, a thousand times, they would say, yes, you deserve every ounce of allegiance and authority and loyalty, but are aware of the sin and selfishness. Grant to us, Lord, a true repentance and grant that we might drink deeply of your grace this morning. And let every Christian leave here with a fresh encouragement that you can walk where only God can walk. You can bear the weight of sin and so we don't have to bear that condemnation anymore. We don't have to bear that guilt anymore. It was laid fully and forever on you. Grant that we might rest in you, the mighty God. You have shoulders that are big enough. You can bear our burdens, bear the burdens of the whole world. So grant every Christian a lightness in their step as they leave, a, 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 a buoyancy, a joy in their hearts, knowing you are the mighty God. And oh God, for anyone who hears this message who's not yet a believer, let today be the day where they bow the knee to you, mighty God. But put them in a place where there's, there's no either or. And I mean, there's no third option anymore, that it's either or, and they, they must decide about you. Don't let them have any rest 
this evening until they decide about you, Jesus. Oh, convict them and don't let up until they decide for you. Let today be the day of their salvation. Grant you the the throne that you deserve, the throne of their hearts, that you are mighty God. We pray all this in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.